God's reading is from Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. This is the English Standard Version. Romans 14, chapters 1 to 12. Highly appropriate this week. Do not pass judgment on one another. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again That he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the Lord in the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then, each of us, will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, first, I, I want to thank uh, all of you who prayed for Wednesday night and, uh, and the many that came uh, for the service at Bethel AME, uh, for the Charleston Martyrs, and uh, for reconciliation. I think you all really blessed them by coming. And a number of you said, what's next? Um, because there was a palpable sense of God's presence there and a richness of reconciliation. Uh, I don't know. Um, I know I'm going to keep pressing into my friendship with Daryl. Um, what's next usually has something to do with the relationship. Uh, but as you talk and pray and get ideas, you know, let's talk, let me know, and uh, we'll follow that way. This is the end of this, uh, this series tonight and uh, the rest of the summer. Uh, we're going to look at some encounters with Jesus, just different, uh, different scenes where Jesus has a conversation with someone and changes their life. That's how we'll spend the rest of the summer. Mark and Adam have been friends for years. They are both graduates of a conservative Christian university. Both attend All Souls. And while hiking in the Smokies last spring, Adam told Mark that he is gay. 
And as they trudged up Cove Mountain Trail, Adam told Mark his story. Adam said that he first encountered feelings of attraction to other boys when he was five. Adam prayed throughout his teenage years that his attraction would go away. He sought counseling. He read books. His desires never changed. While in college, Adam began reading books on faith and sexuality that eventually led him to believe that the passages forbidding same-sex acts in the Bible were not addressing committed, monogamous, same-sex partnerships. Adam believes that God affirms a committed relationship between him and another man. Mark loves Adam like a brother. Adam will be his best man in Mark's wedding. Nothing will change Mark's love for Adam. But Mark believes Scripture rejects all homosexual behavior as sin. And Mark feels trapped. He cannot affirm Adam, but he doesn't want to reject him either. And Adam feels vulnerable. He is afraid that Mark and the community of believers they both love will reject him with disgust. How can Mark and Adam remain in fellowship with one another, even though they disagree over what the Bible teaches about homosexuality? How do Christians disagree well? And that's the question we've been asking uh, for quite a while now, and particularly these last three weeks. And uh, two weeks ago, or two sermons ago, we said that, first of all, Mark and Adam must decide what is in their circle. Every Christian community has a a core of beliefs, a minimum circle uh, that they all hold in common. We've said that the church can be like a tetherball pole, that every church has a pole at the center that is their core doctrine. And we have said for us that our core doctrine is the Nicene Creed. And so Mark and Adam have to decide, and it's not an easy decision, but they have to decide, is is sexuality uh, in their circle? Then Mark and Adam need to engage with humility. They they need to study the Bible together with awareness that that they can't interpret it perfectly, don't have total knowledge. Uh, They should enter the conversation, even though holding on to their own views with the belief that they can learn something from the other. Well, this week we want to consider a third practice that helps Christians disagree well, and we find it in the 14th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul wrote that letter uh, around 55 AD, and the fascinating part, there's a fascinating part of the letter towards the end that is two chapters worth of instruction about living with disagreements. Two groups in the church are fighting with one another. Paul calls these groups the weak and the strong. Now, who are they and what were they fighting about? Well, the weak believers appear to be Jewish Christians who still keep the law. The strong believers appear to be Gentile Christians who believe Christ has freed them from the law. And these two groups are fighting over two very important questions of biblical interpretation. The first area is this. What does the Bible say about the food laws? And Paul summarizes the debate. He says, 
one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, we have a child who is a vegetarian, and at Thanksgiving, she comes in, and we have a little bit of tension as we try to figure out what to feed her over the Thanksgiving holiday, but our carnivorous family usually figures that out pretty quickly. Uh, Is that what the Roman believers are arguing about? No, it's not. Uh, At the time Paul wrote this letter, the Jews had been living in exile for 500 years. And you remember, God had called the Jews to be set apart, a distinct people. Well, when they had to flee Jerusalem, they had to look to their laws to keep them distinct. One of the ways that they could stay distinct in a pagan city was by eating kosher, kosher food. Uh, Well, that's very difficult to do in uh, a pagan city where, one, you don't know if the butcher is kosher, and two, you don't know if the meat's been sacrificed to idols. So, many Jews during the exile decided that they would become vegetarian rather than risk eating uh, meat that was not kosher. Um, Daniel uh, is an example of this when he refused to eat the king's meat in Babylon. Now, when the Jews became Christians, they kept obeying the food laws because those laws were central to their identity as Jews. The Gentile Christians felt free to eat whatever they wanted. Now, that doesn't sound like a problem, but if you understand what was happening in the first century church, it was because they worshipped in houses, and they ended their worship with love feasts. Now, you can imagine, given the importance of food laws to Jewish Christians, the tension in the room when Jerry the Gentile brought his honey-baked ham into the potluck and the kids wanted some. And this created great tension. The Jews judged the Gentiles for not taking God's law seriously. The Gentiles judged the Jews for not understanding grace. Now, the Christians in Rome were also arguing about the Sabbath. The Jewish Christians kept the Sabbath. That was the second major boundary marker during the exile. Uh, Keeping the Sabbath on Saturday set them apart from their non-Jewish neighbors, and it was foundational to their identity. So when they became Christians, they wanted to worship on Saturday. Uh, The Gentiles, though, did not feel that constraint and felt they could worship any night of the week. Paul summarizes a debate like this. One person says one day is better than another, while another esteems all days are alike. So again, you can imagine the the tensions, if you can't figure out what day to worship on, Jews felt that the worship services had to be on the Sabbath. The Gentile Christians had children's soccer games on Sunday and wanted to worship on other days to fit their schedules. That was a little side humor in there that obviously didn't work. Um, (laughs) They didn't really play soccer. Um, The the law-keeping Jewish believers felt they were being asked to give up a foundational tenet of their faith. The grace-loving Gentiles felt the Jewish believers just need to chill out. Now, if we could have the next quote up. uh, Sometimes Christians read Romans 14 and think Paul was addressing trivial matters, but he really wasn't. Uh, New Testament scholar James Dunn in his commentary on Romans, he puts it like this, "The the issue which confronts Paul here is no slight or casual one. Those today who think he's making too much fuss over some peculiarities of diet or particular feast days have completely missed the point. The issue was far more serious than that. The issue here was much more fundamental. What was at stake was nothing less than the whole self-understanding of the new movement 
of which Paul was the chief apostle, in other words, the definition of Christianity itself. So two groups in the Church of Rome are in serious disagreement about very important matters of their faith. And Paul writes Romans 14 to help them understand how to handle this without dividing the church. Now, can Mark and Adam turn to Romans 14 as they navigate their disagreement? I believe they can. Because godly Christians, living under the authority of Scripture, do interpret the Bible's teaching on homosexuality differently. The majority of Christians, Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant, believe and have believed from the beginning of the church that homosexual practice is sinful. A small but growing number of Christians, however, do not believe that the Bible forbids committed monogamous same-sex partnerships. Now, not too many years ago, I did not believe that there was an alternative way of reading the seven Bible passages that condemn homosexual behavior. But for the past several years, I've been meeting with a gay Christian man in our congregation. I'll call him Brian. We've exchanged many emails, articles, and books where I have explained uh, my understanding of a traditional reading of the Scriptures, and he has explained how he understands the Scriptures. Uh, I've not changed my view, but I have come to uh, appreciate and respect uh, his as a faithful way to understand difficult texts. Now, tonight is not a sermon on homosexuality. If you'd like a reading list on both sides of the issue, I'd be happy to provide that for you. This is a sermon on what to do when Christians disagree on important questions of biblical interpretations. And Christians do read these seven texts on homosexuality differently. Let me give you a couple examples of evangelical Christians who have a high view of Scripture, but have come to the conclusion that the Bible does not forbid faithful same-sex partnership. Fred Harrell is the senior pastor of City Church, one of the largest evangelical churches in San Francisco. He started the church in 1991 as part of Tim Keller's Presbyterian Church of America Church Planning Network, although I believe they left that denomination And he wrote in a letter to his congregation last March, we will no longer discriminate based on sexual orientation and demand lifelong celibacy as a precondition for joining. David Agushi, a Baptist minister and professor of Christian ethics, released a book in October called Changing Our Mind, where he talks about how he reads the scriptures differently now on homosexuality. Christian writer Tony Campolo calls himself a staunch evangelical who believes the Bible's authors were, quote, inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit. He also changed his understanding. He says, I've come to read the relevant passages differently. People of goodwill can and do read the scriptures very differently when it comes to controversial issues. Now, we can see how this has become an area of division in the evangelical church uh, by what happened after that. David Neff, who was the editor of Christianity Today, which is kind of the flagship magazine of evangelicalism, 
he posted on Facebook, God bless Tony Campolo. He is acting in good faith and is, I think, on the right track. Uh, the current editor of Christianity Today, Mark Galley, immediately responded with an editorial. Breaking news, two billion Christians believe in traditional marriage. Uh, so we can see that Christians of goodwill and good faith do disagree uh, about what the Bible says on homosexuality. Now, how do we disagree on something this important? Well, Paul gives two directives. First, when we disagree on an important matter like this, we need to make sure that what we believe is based on Scripture. Now, I think it's fair to say that the American church has uh, struggled to to make Scripture their authority many times as they try to discern God's will on difficult passages. Often it seems that feelings and experience uh, become the trump card, uh, that the authority of your story outweighs the authority of Scripture. But I think it's important to say uh, what Paul says in verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It's very important when we disagree on things that we study God's word and determine what we think the text says. Why? Because we are ultimately accountable to God for what we interpret it to mean. And we, we read the verses a moment ago. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. The Lordship of Christ is all through this passage. Somebody asked me during this series, so are you saying with your emphasis on the creed that, that I can believe in the creed, but then everything else is just opinion? It doesn't really matter much. Um, if that's what you heard me say, I repent and apologize, uh, that is clearly not what I am saying. What I'm trying to say is that God's word is authoritative over all of our lives. There are places where we do disagree, and in those places we need to study what it says and then obey it as best we can. Now, a wonderful way to do this is the yes and approach we talked about last week. And and this is, uh, if you'd ask me, how do you see spiritual formation and growth uh, working in a congregation like ours? I think it's this yes-and approach on difficult questions. And I encourage you, uh, when you encounter difficult biblical questions, to get together with your people and study both sides of the issue and come to your own conclusions. Uh, If you're wrestling with different views on marriage, get a book on egalitarian marriage, another on the traditional view, and and read it together. Read a pro-choice essay on abortion and a pro-life essay on abortion and talk about it. Uh, Read some essays on racial reconciliation from different views and talk about them. Uh, uh, Read some good sermons on generosity and simplicity from different perspectives and and talk about them. Uh, If a controversial amendment uh, comes on the ballot addressing a matter of application of Christian faith, get together and talk about both sides of the issue. It's a great way to develop a comprehensive Christian worldview that can guide you as you live out your discipleship in a complicated world. Now, 
many of us fear conversations like that because we have experiences that suggest that uh, having those talks will lead to the disruption of our relationships with people we love. And I have that fear too. I've shared that with you. Uh, You know, last night and this morning, the shepherding team met with Lisa Murray and her colleague Verlin to do this workshop on collaborative communication. And as I was praying about it, I noticed um, that I felt anxious, that I felt fearful uh, about the retreat. And as I prayed about why, the Lord brought a memory to mind. That happens sometimes when you pray. And and I was a little guy, I think I was like six, and we were on vacation in this big rented uh, house on a river, and my family had brought up another family, and I'd gone to bed one night, and I'd heard yelling downstairs, and uh, um, my parents had gotten into an argument with the other couple, I think it was about politics, I don't remember, and they, uh, the other couple uh, left the vacation, um, I think in the middle of the night. And a couple other experiences like that have, have led me to fear uh, hard conversations about things like this. But one of the things that God is doing at All Souls in my life, and I hope in your life, is uh, teaching me that if you create a good, safe place, and you're led by the Spirit, and your hearts are turned towards each other, something real precious can happen when you have a conversation like this. And it happened this weekend at the retreat. Uh, Lisa is a very, very gifted woman, uh, and Ferlin as well. And the the last hour of the retreat, I was thinking about it, it was one of the most sacred conversations I've ever been a part of. It wasn't perfect, it wasn't messy, it wasn't easy, but, you know, we're a diverse church. Actually, if you watched, if you followed Facebook after Friday's decision... (laughs) We are a rather diverse church. We have a lot of different opinions in this congregation. So obviously our board's diverse too. Um, Probably one of the most diverse church boards you'll ever find. In the last hour of our retreat, we got to this space where people were sharing what they really thought and believed about the most important things in life. And it wasn't an argument. It it, it, it just was this, this... break open window for for this sacred hour where we just listen to each other. And I I can count on one hand how many times I've been in a conversation like that. It's a holy thing. I think that's why God wants us to try to do it. Well, Paul gives another directive to... Christians who are disagreeing. Essentially, it's give your friend to God. It says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. He says, look, I stop judging each other when you disagree. That's God's job. Now, pause. Read the book of Galatians. (laughs) When it is a core gospel issue, 
Paul does not say, <laughs> hey, you see it one way, he sees it another, give them to God. <laughs> no. When it's a core gospel issue relating to salvation, Paul fights to the death uh, and pulls out all his rhetorical tools to make sure that you get it right. But even as important as these issues were in the Roman church, at the end of the day, he says, I want you guys to quit judging and trust your brother, trust your sister to God. Well, how should Mark and Adam handle their disagreement about this very important matter? Well, the easiest way, the simplest way, would be for Mark to find a church that will take a strong stand on the sinfulness of the homosexual lifestyle, and for Adam to find a church that affirms gay marriage. That would be easier for us all. But there is another way. Mark and Adam can keep talking and praying and studying, and if we're honest... If we really believe what Scripture says, we really believe that the truth as we understand it is the key to flourishing, you are going to try to change one another's minds. That's part of what rigorous conversation is all about. And they can keep doing that and keep doing that and keep doing that. And then they can give one another God. Now, what might happen if they take the road less traveled? Well, first, they will have an opportunity to strengthen their friendship. I'm learning a lot about friendship in our church and, and uh, that there's levels of friendship that I didn't really know before. There's a special grace God reserves for his children when they discover a love that transcends their differences. And I found that grace in my friendship with Danny Bullington. Uh, Danny and I are very different. We come from very different backgrounds and I I kind of remember joking, I'm not sure I've got this right, but I remember when he was joining in pilgrimage, he said something like, we, we really didn't think we'd wind up here, but the Lord's kind of made us come here. And I remember thinking, well, yeah, you sure you're, you really want to come here? And, you know, we were kind of dancing around, and I'm so glad that you all have come here. And I know we disagree on a lot, but at the moment I can't remember what it is because it doesn't really matter much anymore. I just know... Danny is a man who, after 60 years in the Baptist church, has deep wisdom, deep faith. He's in chronic pain, but always pushes towards the cross. You'd never know it. He's always shepherding somebody else. And I'm really thankful that he's in my life. Pushing through these things can deepen friendship. Mark and Adam, if they hang in there, could have an opportunity to deepen their faith and uh, if we could put this slide up, um, Lisa and Furlan gave us this handout describing different levels of conversation. And you may have seen something like this before. Suppose Mark and Adam get together a week after their hiking trip to check in. Mark says, um, you know, how was your week? And Adam says, great, how was yours? And Mark talks about a CrossFit workout. And Adam talks about a business trip. That's what this, this book calls downloading. You know, just kind of sharing information. And then maybe Mark says at another conversation, Adam, I've really been struggling since our hike. 
uh, I really love you and I think you're, you're deceived, brother. And he, he pulls out Wesley Hill's washed and waiting out of his briefcase and he gives it to Adam and he says, please read this, brother, and reconsider. And then Adam pulls out his backpack and pulls out James Brownson's Bible, Gender, and Sexuality and slides that across the table to Mark. And he says, well, fair enough, Mark. I'll read that if you read this. And for the rest of the summer, Mark and Adam send dueling emails back and forth to one another. I think that ought to happen too. That's an important part of the conversation. Uh, in this model, this is called debating. Well, let's say by the end of the summer, Mark has given four books, five sermons, and 15 blogs to Adam. Adam has responded in kind. They go hiking again. But something shifted. And Mark says... Can you tell me more what it's like to be gay? And Adam says, What do you fear for me the most, Mark? In this model, this is called dialogue. The months pass. Mark still believes that God's will for Adam is faithful celibacy supported by a loving community. Adam still believes God may give him a partner one day. Mark prays for Adam. Mark is worried about Adam. Mark loves Adam. Adam prays for Mark. He worries about Mark. But a deeper shift has come. There's more peace on their hikes now, more stillness. They have a connection they can't describe to other people. The model calls that presencing. And what, in my experience, occurs to me is that we tend to stay in the first two and that if your primary form of communicating is Facebook, you never leave the first two and that occasionally we bump into dialogue and very rarely we get close to presencing. And what strikes me about that is that it's impossible to do without God. And that's why faith matters. And staying in a relationship like this can deepen our faith. Well, Mark and Adam can model another way of disagreeing to their neighbors. I received a letter about a week or two ago, May 28, 2015, um, from my friend James. James used to work at Starbucks many years ago. I've lost touch with him. Uh, he always took good care of me. And I asked him for permission to read this to you. James says, I'm writing because I truly don't know who else to talk to. For the last two to three years, I've not been to church, and I have no desire to return. As far back as I can remember, I was always taken to church. By the time I was 14, I was playing the piano in church. The problem is all the hypocrisy and double standards have made me so bitter and resentful. As you may know, I am gay. I've never been in a relationship. I've never had a boyfriend. I've never been on a date. 
and I'll probably never be actively gay. What frustrates me is how many Christians place homosexuality at the top of their list of worst sins, but at the same time engage in greed, adultery, prejudice, and easy divorce. I never chose to be this way. For years, I hated myself so much. I prayed, I begged God to make me straight. I was indirectly taught to hate myself. I have this deeply ingrained belief that all straight men automatically hate and are disgusted by gay men, and if I'm around them very long, I fear they will learn I'm gay and reject me. I know many people believe homosexuality is a sin. Obviously, I think differently, even if it is, aren't divorce and remarriage also? When I see so many churchgoers bash homosexuals, I don't want to have anything to do with organized religion. I've listed my email below, Doug. I'm so sorry, but I can never talk with you in person or on the phone. Blessings always. James. Well, perhaps a church where Mark and Adam can lovingly disagree might just be a community that helps James find his way back to God. Well, we're done now. We've been talking about how to be both doctrinally pure and lovingly unified for 21 weeks. At the end of the day, we've said... Hold on to the core, disagree well. And I've been praying for a metaphor or an illustration or a story to end this series with, and I keep coming back to one that doesn't really fit, and so I keep removing it from the sermon, and I removed it this afternoon as well. But I'm going to share it with you anyway, even though it doesn't fit. And (laughs) maybe it has a kind of a prophetic resonance to it. But when we were getting ready for the retreat... Uh, I forgot, Jesse was there, I think Jill was there, and Lisa was there, and we were eating lunch at some restaurant. And Lisa had ordered a, a salad with a big piece of chicken on it. And Lisa has MS, and on some days she shakes, and some days she shakes more than others. And on that day, she was shaking a lot. And so while we were eating our meal, she was shaking and couldn't hold the knife to cut the chicken. And so moments went by, moments went by. We were about halfway through. And then Jesse gently reached over, took her plate, cut her chicken for her. Somehow that's the story I want to leave you with. Let's pray. Thank you.